Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Even if you didn't know the full story, just judging by the number of gyms on every corner of every city, the number of retailers selling high-priced exercise equipment and workout gear, you'd see what an obsession exercise has become. But why? A form of activity that uses huge quantities of our time. It's neither playful or sports-like or seemingly rewarding. So why is it so popular, so all-consuming? Where is the fun in all that sweat? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Bill Hayes. Bill Hayes is the author of seven previous books, including Insomnia City and The Anatomist. He's a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship and is a frequent contributor to The New York Times. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Hayes back to this program to talk about his new work, Sweat, A History of Exercise. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. It's great to have you. Sometimes it seems as if everybody is obsessed with working out, going to the gym. Is is that just the perception in certain bubbles that we all live in, or is that pretty much across the board? (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. People are obsessed either uh, positively or negatively. (laughs) They either love it or hate it. Um, So, yeah, I think that is true. What I tried to do with my book, though, was to trace the evolution of exercise over the millennia from ancient Greece and Rome, up through the Renaissance, the 19th century, and to the present day. Right. It has a certain, I mean, for somebody, uh, uh, full disclosure here, I I hate the idea of exercise and just Mm -hmm. the very word sends shivers through my spine. But somehow the the idea, and and your book sort of did this, of, of relating it to ancient Rome and Greece and Renaissance times, it gives it a patina that's much better than, than just the local gym. Mm-hmm. I think there's a misconception that exercise is a purely modern construct or modern phenomenon. So many people I talk to about this book are surprised. They thought, well, exercise as we know it started in the, let's say, 1960s or 70s. But in fact, exercise and athletics was a huge part of the culture of ancient Greece and Rome and in the, in the East as well. So we have physicians and philosophers and thinkers um, from Susuruta in India to Hippocrates in Greece thinking and writing and talking about exercise 2,000 years ago. And this is for all the people that, that have to realize that exercise did not begin with Peloton. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. It surprises people as well to hear that there were gymnasiums in nearly every town in the Greek Empire, and that gyms were as much a part of, of daily life as um, the market. You talk about the gymnasiums in ancient times as having almost a, a, a religiosity to them, that eventually they came, became replaced by cathedral. Right. With the rise of Christianity in the West in, let's say, the 3rd, 4th centuries A.D., um, there's a total pivot away from a culture that sort of worshipped the body, where the athlete was the ideal, to a culture where Christianity prevailed. And um, instead of the body, it was the soul, the spirit, that uh, people focused on. And you're right, cathedrals replaced gymnasiums as, as sacred places, and it was considered almost indecent or sinful or vain to exercise um, for the sake of exercise. 
I'm not saying that people didn't move, you know, didn't perhaps dance or engage in some kind of sporting activity, but this whole culture of of exercise and sort of cult of the body that had prevailed for so long uh, did change. Um, it didn't change overnight, but it changed. And it wasn't until um, the 16th century that an interest in exercise, especially as practiced by the Greeks and Romans, uh, came back. What was the low point? As you look historically, what do you see as the low points for this kind of fixation with, with the body and exercise? Well, I think certainly um, the 3rd and 4th centuries AD with the first uh, Holy Roman emperors like um, Constantine the Great, he was the first to ban gladiatorial contests. And then one of his successors banned the Olympic Games. And the thinking there was that they were related to paganism with you know, animal sacrifices, blood sacrifices, uh, games and athletic competitions uh, dedicated to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods rather than to, to the one god of Christianity. Um, so I think that was really a low point. Exercise sort of disappeared. It became, in the words of um, the 16th century physician Gerolamo Mercuriali, it became extinct. And uh, so Mercuriali in the 16th century was interested in reviving the ancient Greek art of exercise. And when we look at the ancient times, what constituted exercise then? What, what was it? Uh, it wasn't all that different from what we do today. Um, certainly you have to remember that something like the bicycle had not been invented, so there was no bicycling. Um, but uh, running, wrestling... Walking, swimming, boxing, the different Olympic sports, uh, whether running or boxing, there's a sport called pancration, which is sort of like mixed martial arts. These were, it sort of trickled down so that these were also uh, performed in gymnasiums by the ordinary citizen. Although I should say right away, it was men and boys, not women who were allowed to, um, exercise at the gyms at that time. Talk a little bit about the evolution of exercise in the modern West and, and really when it gained its popularity. Well, a turning point is really, really the 19th century. Some of it is a reaction to the Industrial Revolution when globally there was a concern, even a fear, that people were becoming too sedentary. And to put it simplistically, moving from the farm to the factory becoming too sedentary. And there was a real movement throughout the world um, to get people to exercise and to get outdoors, to get fresh air. Um, this also intersects with the rise in the West of the women's rights movements and the suffragette movements. So for the first time, you really begin to see women and girls encouraged to exercise. Um, other things come up almost by chance, which are, you know, fascinating in the history of exercise. A good example is the invention of the bicycle. You know, it's something we practically take for granted nowadays. In most major cities, there are things like city bike we have here in New York. Um, but the bicycle, it took a surprisingly long time to perfect the bicycle as we know it today, about 75 years. But by 1895 or 96, a model called the safety bicycle 
had been created, and it very much resembled what we what we have today. One of my favorite quotes in the book comes from Susan B. Anthony, the great women's rights act- activist and suffragette. And she said, and I'm quoting here, the bicycle has done more for the emancipation of women than anything else in the world. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel, the picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. So it was not only a form of transportation to ride a bike to get to a place, but of recreation and exercise. Um, Also at this time in the 19th century, there was a movement towards encouraging children to exercise and the rise of what we would call today PE classes, physical education classes. And some of that comes out of um, Sweden, where there was a an important figure in the history of exercise who really championed PE classes for kids. Was there ever a period where there was real pushback to any of this in in, in more contemporary times to exercise, to PE classes? Or was it always something that was just accepted as this is good, so we should do it? Well, I don't want to overemphasize how women were encouraged and permitted for the first time in the 19th century to exercise because Really, it's not until modern times that it becomes very acceptable um, for women to exercise just like men. Um, So I think it's really not until the turning point of the 1970s and 80s, especially with a figure like Jane Fonda, who I think was really groundbreaking and one of the most important figures in the history of exercise for the very reason that she democratized exercise. She made it possible for women to exercise at home. They didn't have to join a gym. They didn't have to hire a babysitter. Um, And um, the fact of the matter is, and I say this, uh, you know, after sort of approaching her videotapes and her early books with a little bit of skepticism, even though I'm old enough that I remember when she sort of came to fame with those videos. But I went back and looked at them, and they really held up. They have not aged or dated. Her workouts were very sensible and terrific, and she was a great instructor. Um, so women and men alike could purchase one of Jane's videotapes and get a great workout just at home. And that was, um, that was really a game changer in the history of exercise. And wasn't that preceded, though, by exercise coming to television, people like Jack LaLanne and, and other imitations? Yeah, t- t- TV was definitely a big part of bringing exercise into people's homes. Um, I certainly remember Jack LaLanne. Um, and there were, there were women, too, uh, who hosted shows or appeared on talk shows and demonstrated different forms of exercise. So... Um, yeah, that all begins to change in the 50s and 60s, and it becomes much more what would later become the multi-billion dollar fitness industry, really. Talk a little bit about the nexus between fitness and sports. In some ways, they're connected, it seems, and yet in other ways, they, they go in separate directions. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you engage in sports, you're getting exercise, but I think there's a real difference between them with sports. um, There are rules you play by 
uh, there is an opponent or opponents, whether that's an individual in a sport like tennis, where you're just playing one other person, or a team like football or baseball. And um, perhaps most importantly, there's a winner and a loser in sports. Whereas with exercise, um, you you make your own rules. <laughs> you know, you can exercise as long as you want, or as, for as little as you want, and do whatever you want. Um, you're competing only against yourself, and um, there are only winners. You're a winner. Your body is a winner if you just take a quick walk. When did the medical establishment put its two cents in to, to add its imprimatur to exercise? Surprisingly late. I mean, this was a surprise for me as a researcher. Uh, you know, Hippocrates wrote about the benefits of exercise back in the 5th century B.C., and the Roman physician Galen um, in the 2nd century A.D. wrote and, and lectured about the benefits of exercise. However, indisputable scientific evidence for the benefits of exercise in terms of improving health and um, extending lifespan did not come until the mid-1950s. And um, that was later than I expected. But um, the person who was sort of credited as the founder of the field of exercise science is a fellow from London named Jeremy Morris, who was a physician and an epidemiologist. And he designed an incredibly clever scientific study looking at, um, in, his, in that case, thousands of double-decker bus drivers and conductors in London over the course of a year. And as you probably know, the drivers <clears throat> sit behind the wheel of the double-decker bus and drive. The conductors are hopping off and on the bus all day and up and down the stairs of the double-decker bus. Basically, their, their work is a workout. And what Morris found was that the conductors, those who were moving all day long, had much lower incidence of heart disease and a longer lifespan than the conductors who, who were sitting and driving all day. Um, and that was published in the, in the Lancet, um, a leading medical journal. And he then sort of replicated his study with postal workers, where he studied those who deliver mail versus those who are sort of civil servants in the office to sorting mail. And he found the exact same result. The, those who delivered mail had, were healthier, lived longer, less incidence of heart disease um, compared to the um, civil servants who were at work in the back office or in the offices. And how long did it take before this study and, and, and these ideas became kind of mainstream? Well, it was then it becomes a little bit quick. There was around the same time an American group of researchers who studied children and the effects of uh, exercise or movement on children, comparing American children to European children. And in that study, they found that the American children fared far worse than European children of the same age. Um, and television itself was blamed um, for that. And that led actually to President Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, founding the President's Council on Fitness, um, which has gone through different names over the years, but basically the President's Council on Fitness. So Eisenhower um, established that council based on some of this research about children or kids. And also 
his own personal experience. Eisenhower, as some people might remember or know, suffered a mild heart attack while in office, and he was also a smoker. And his cardiologist recommended that he stop smoking, which at the time it was not widely known, the link between smoking and heart disease, um, and encouraged him, Eisenhower, to get more exercise. He wasn't the biggest spokesperson for exercise. I would say that came with um, JFK, his successor, who really made exercise you know, part of his message to the American people and really expanded the um, just sort of the, the goals of the President's Council on Fitness, extending it not just to youth but to adults as well. And what was the turn that we took that put a gym on every corner? And made them, you know, fancier and fancier in many in many cities in many places, but but really made it so ubiquitous. Well, money. <laughs> <laughs> People found they could make money off of gyms and gym memberships. It's it's kind of that simple. But there are a lot of different forces that came into play. One of the most important being celebrity. I mean, figures like Jane Fonda, figures like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, where intersecting with a period in the 1970s where there was a new emphasis on kind of sexual freedom and emphasis on the body and people became interested men and women alike in going to the gym and working out and um, improving the way they look it became a trend really and people learned they could you know make money off of gyms and gym memberships So that's really, there had been gyms before, as I've said repeatedly. There were gymnasiums back in ancient Greece in the 4th century BC. Uh, But that period went away, and it really wasn't until the 1970s that that gyms and that whole culture of the body and cult of the body really came back. Given where we are now, what, what do you imagine might be different if we were looking at the state of exercise, personal exercise 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Will it look like today, or do you see underlying trends that might lead to change? Well, I think we've learned that any form of exercise is good for you. It can really be as simple as just taking a walk. I think this question you're asking me would have been harder to ask had it not been for the pandemic. I think the pandemic was... Uh, amazing and how it, you know, forced people to change their exercise habits. Um, Those of us who were gym members suddenly did not have a gym to go to when there was the lockdown all around the world. Gyms everywhere closed for months and had to adapt to doing exercise at home, um, finding ways to exercise outside, um, people learning that they could exercise via virtual programs, YouTube or Instagram Live, and you know, following personal trainers. So I think the intersection of the virtual world and the digital world is something, and how popular that became, how quickly, um, is something I might not have predicted had it not been for the pandemic. It's, I, I just found it amazing and sort of wonderful how quickly people adapted. And yes, it's true, a lot of people just stopped exercising as well, um, but, um, but also found ways to exercise in new ways. I know just for myself, 
I am a swimmer. Um, my pool was closed for at least six months. So, you know, I wanted to get some exercise in my day. I began taking walks, something I really, you know, didn't do with any intention before and really came to appreciate the simple pleasures of walking and how it's good for the body and the mind. As a result of doing all this research, working on this book, how did it, if it all, change your views about exercise, what you do, etc.? Well, in doing the book, it's not only a history of exercise, but a sort of chronicle of my own history of exercise. <laughs> so um, it made me appreciate how uh, my own attitudes and practices have changed over time as I've gotten older. I'm not as much of a gym rat, for example, as I used to be. I'm 61 now, and I've had enough gym injuries from lifting too heavily to, to really be a gym rat anymore. And I've shifted more to things like swimming and walking, um, though I do still lift occasionally. Um, I think it made me appreciate exercise and not take it for granted as much as I did, especially after the pandemic, you know, when gyms were closed and you just had to scramble and figure out ways to do it in new ways. Um, and part of my process in writing the book was kind of dissecting the dynamics of human movement. I'm not an anatomist. I'm not a doctor, but I've studied anatomy. And um, it really made me, you know, just sort of dissecting uh, the act of walking <laughs> made me appreciate the fact that we human beings can walk so much more, not to mention run. What form of exercise surprises you the most? You watch people doing it and, and, and think, why are they doing that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, there's certain things I, <laughs> I see people do at the gym that uh, I question not only why are they doing that, but why <laughs> is that safe? Um, <laughs> um, I've never really gotten into Pilates. I'm sure it's a very wonderful form of exercise, but it requires all kinds of equipment that I don't possess and that my gym doesn't have. Um, you know, I think one of the lessons looking at the history of exercise, especially the ancient Greeks and Romans, is how simple it really can be. It doesn't have to be anything that elaborate. Um, and it doesn't have to be super, super high intensity. Um, from the beginning, Hippocrates, Plato, Galen, others preached moderation. Um, it was Plato who said, it's not the number of exercises, but their moderate nature that brings about a good human constitution. And it was Galen, a couple centuries later, who said, exercise should not only exert the body, but should delight the soul. And I, I love that. I think exercise should not be agonizing or arduous, um, but should be something you enjoy that, as he said, delights the soul. Of course, that includes today buying the $150 sneakers and everything at Lululemon. Right, right. That has become very much part of exercise culture today. And, you know, it's not necessary, but if people can afford it and they, they want that, um, there certainly are innovations in fabric and design that may make it more comfortable or fun. Um, it's just it's just another form of fashion, you know, for some people, it's a form of expression. Um, but I'm pretty old school in what I wear. <laughs> old T-shirts and shorts, things like that. 
Bill Hayes, his book is Sweat, A History of Exercise. Bill, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's my pleasure.